Thank you, Jonathan and choir and musicians. Uh, thank you so much to our friendly neighbors. I know many of them are next door watching uh, on the screens in the sanctuary or online, but many also in here. Thank you for a special uh, gift here. I look forward to getting home this afternoon and uh, reading through the notes. That's very special. As, as Kevin Knight indicated, you're a very special congregation it's ironic, uh, here we are in Philippians, and Philippians was a very special, probably the most special congregation to the Apostle Paul. And uh, I can certainly tell you that is how your staff feels about you. You are a very gracious people, and it is much appreciated, and it's much noticed as well. So thank you for being who you are. Thank you also for your prayers for my family of recent days. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a new grandpa. Now the oldest grandson's two and a half, but uh, another grandson, just a couple of weeks old. He's had a difficult start to life. Uh, he was back in the hospital yesterday uh, there in St. Louis, and so pray for them. Uh, he is home now. We'll be going to see his pediatrician again tomorrow has just had some difficulty with various counts and so forth, but overall report uh, very encouraging and very good. And so thank you for your prayers for him uh, and also for Melinda. By the way, I'm not the only new grandpa of recent days. Uh, I can hand off the ugliest grandpa award now to David Fink. Of course, I tell David he looks a lot like a great-grandpa instead of just a grandpa. But uh, uh, Brianna and Tim Freeze had a little baby boy, uh, Harrison. You've not seen much of them uh, around here lately during her pregnancy with COVID because back in 2009, uh, Brianna was in a fight for her life with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and since then does not have full lung capacity and so they've been very careful with her but uh, anyway congratulate them uh, when you uh, see them uh, also we have a member I think the date is still on this week I believe it's the 28th Elaine Lee uh, one of our members here will be sworn in in Greensboro as a new American citizen and so that is certainly something to celebrate. So uh, send her a note of encouragement if you get a chance to do so, please. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. Philippians 4, 1 to 7, bringing joy to life. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Bringing joy to life. Paul says, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche poor ladies he calls them by name I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord yes I ask you also true companion help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired word. This is the word of the Lord. And through the power of your spirit, God, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds that we would understand it. And Lord, that it would be life-changing to us. Lord, you do not give us your word simply for information, certainly not for entertainment but for transformation that we will be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, use this passage today as you please in the hearts of your people. I thank you for these people. Even as Paul was thankful for the Philippians. And God, I pray that these words would be riveted upon our hearts that we would be a people filled with joy and contentment as we live in a dark and a dying world. Lord, help us to be an aroma of life. As Paul said to the Corinthians that Christians are to be an aroma of life to those who are willing to hear our message, the good news of Christ. Enable us to be salt and light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the guys upstairs, maybe the monitors and sound seems to me to be maybe a little loud this morning, so maybe if they bring adjustment to that. Folks, we all know that the Christian life can be difficult at times. After all, Paul said in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. We know that our struggles come from three primary sources. First of all, there's the devil. Folks, I think of that garrison demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Satan had had his way in that man's life. And think not only about that man, but that man's family, no doubt everything that they have suffered because of demonic activity in that man's life. We know that Satan's plan is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And Peter says he's as a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He targets you and me. The world is another source of our struggles. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that the world will hate you because you are not of the world. The world loves its own. Folks, we must not compromise with the world because as James says in James chapter 4, if we are the friend of the world, we have made ourselves the enemies of God. A third source of our problems is is the flesh. We're told in the New Testament that the flesh and the spirit are in a battle. 
I think of that occasion when Jesus in the garden admonished his disciples to watch and pray with him. He found them sleeping and he said, The spirit is willing indeed, but the flesh is weak. Because of his battles with the flesh, Paul in Romans 7 called himself a wretched man. He said, The things I want to do, I don't end up doing. It's the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. We can all identify with that. And so, folks, as a result of these struggles, we know very well that the spiritual stability of any given family, even a church family at times, can be threatened. A concern for the health of Christians, both individually and corporately, occurs all through the pages of the New Testament. Now Philippians chapter 4 expresses some of Paul's concerns over the Philippian congregation. Now again, I remind you, this was a church near and dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul had had that Macedonian vision while he was still in Asia Minor of that man saying, come over here and help us. He concluded that God had called them to Europe. And so they set out on that missionary journey, landed down in Philippi, and there by the river they joined up with a prayer meeting that was going on. Lydia was the first convert in Europe. She was a businesswoman. There was also a slave girl who was converted. And the Philippian jailer. Out of that small group, a church formed at Philippi, and no doubt it was the favorite church of the Apostle Paul. He said in chapter 1, I thank God for you, for the partnership that you have shown in the gospel. Think of that. The partners that they had been with the Apostle Paul in the spread of the good news as Paul went on missionary journeys. In chapter 4, verse 1, he describes them in the most affectionate of terms. They are brothers and sisters that he longs for, and he loves them deeply. You see, folks, the church is a family. It is a spiritual family. We are the family of God, and we're brothers and sisters in the Lord with a common Father, our Heavenly Father. He describes them here as his joy and his crown. At present, they are his joy. Is there anybody that you can look to now that you would describe as being your joy? Anybody that you've impacted for the sake of the gospel. And when you look at their life, it gives you great joy to see what God has done in and through them. Then at the judgment seat, they will be the Apostle Paul's crown. The Bible talks about crowns. One of the crowns mentioned in the Bible is the soul winner's crown. We need to ask ourselves, will there be anybody in heaven that is our crown? Will there be anybody there because of our efforts at spreading the good news of Christ and because of our efforts in sharing our own testimony about what Christ has done in us? You know, I'll go so far as to say that you may not be as interested in the growth of your Christian life or your daily witness 
uh, if you're not concerned about these things that Paul is talking about here, the body of Christ and how he goes on to admonish them to stand firm in the Lord. That's very important. We're a family together. We identify as a family. We love one another. There are people who are joy and crown and then collectively as well as individually, we are to stand firm in the Lord. So I want you to see what Paul is doing here. He's commending them and challenging them. He's a little bit worried about them. He's a little worried about their stability. He names these two ladies that are causing a bit of a di disruption uh, in, in the congregation there. And he's worried about that. They need the mind of Christ. They need to consider one another's needs above their own. They need to put others first. Each lady is uh, apparently trying to maybe get others on their side. And we know that's a dangerous game to play. They're threatening the fellowship of the church. And so again, what Paul is doing in this, in this passage here, he's both commending them and he's challenging them. He's admonishing them. He is admonishing them to take definite actions that they must take in order to bring joy to the church and joy to the Christian life in general. Folks, I, with all the negativity in 2020, I see this as a very applicable text to people today. Let's look at these admonitions that he gives them. First of all, he gives them an appeal to perseverance. He says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. The world, the flesh, and the devil attacks every one of us every single day. And wherever there's a church that is a testimony to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be certain that Satan is attacking. And so we need to persevere in the faith. We need to stand firm in the faith. And we need to stand firm in the Lord. These words are a lot like what Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples when he said, Abide in me. Ten times in 11 verses, he said, Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. In other words, stand firm in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, we need to persevere in standing firm in our relationship to Jesus Christ. Far too many believers today are facing the world each day in their own strength and neglecting the most basic relationship in their life. They're neglecting their relationship with Christ. And if we neglect that relationship, nothing else in the Christian life is going to go right. Everything flows out of that love relationship with Christ. No wonder Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, 
You, you have taken a great fall. You have fallen out of love with me. You've left your first love. You need to repent and come back to me. In other words, you need to give attention. You need to persevere in your relationship with me. And you need to come back to what that relationship ought to be. Folks, we have no power apart from Christ. You may have heard about the unambitious young vacuum cleaner salesman back in the days when vacuum cleaner salesmen were still going door to door and making sales. And he visited this one lady's home and bragging on his vacuum cleaner that he wanted to sell her. And he dumped out uh, all the contents in the bag on, in the middle of her carpet to her gasp. And he said, don't worry, ma'am, I guarantee you this vacuum cleaner will get up every bit of that. In fact, if it won't get every bit of it up, I'll eat it with the spoon. Well, she got up and was going to the kitchen. He said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to get your spoon. We don't have electricity here. <laughs> Folks, Christ is the power of the Christian life. He is the power in the Christian life. We need to stand firm in Him. We need to persevere in our relationship with Him. We have no strength, no ability to bear fruit apart from Him. And it's not just the big things that we need to watch out for that threaten that. The greater risk to our faith may be the little things. Alexander McLaren has gone down in history as one of the greatest Bible expositors of all times. And in his exposition of this section of Philippians, he talks about being in Egypt and standing in front of the great sphinx. As you look at that sculpture in stone, it was, it was such that an iron chisel could be broken on it. And yet... It is the years and years of sand, sand from the desert winds hitting it that have worn the facial features away. It was not the big blows, but the little blows, constant, over time, that have worn it down. Folks, if we're not careful, that's how we can be in our faith. We're reminded that we stand firm on Christ, and as we do so, we're standing on a good foundation. The Bible says, they, they who put their faith in Him shall never be disappointed. If your life is built on Him, the storms of life are still going to come. The storms are going to rage against you, but your house is going to stand. And then as we stand firm in the Lord, we can face anything that the world or the devil throws at us. Because the Bible says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Persevere. Stand firm. A second appeal. He gives an appeal to deal with conflict and division quickly. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
They need to deal with petty divisions. Paul describes these two women who have labored side by side alongside of him. He also mentions a man by the name of Clement who's done the same. And he mentions others. And so these women were very valuable to the life of the church there at Philippi. They've labored alongside the Apostle Paul. These were women who had been warriors for the faith. We know that's a role women played in in the first century, the new churches. There was Lydia, the first convert, that the Bible says the Lord opened her heart. She was a founding member of the church at, at Philippi. Then you have Phoebe that Paul calls out by name in Romans and commends her. And what an example and a servant she is to the church there. And then you have Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, along with her husband, has come alongside of Apollos, probably the most eloquent speaker in the early church, but he needed to be discipled in the things of the Lord. He needed to grow in his knowledge of the Word of God. He needed to be discipled in doctrine. Priscilla is a lady who helped disciple one of the greatest speakers in the New Testament world. Here are two other women who who are not on the mere edges of the ministry there at Philippi. They're core members of the church. Co-laborers. Paul says they have their name in the Lamb's book of life and yet they're not getting along. Folks, their division is threatening the very work of the gospel that they had fought so hard to establish. You know, it's such a shame if we ever have division with fellow church members to the point that even the proclamation of the gospel is threatened in that fellowship. From time to time in my first church out of seminary, years before I got there, in fact about a decade before I got there, there had been such a nasty squabble in the church. I mean, it, it, was, it was such a horrendous church battle. They literally had to have deputies from the sheriff's department come in and moderate their services and moderate the business meeting. That's how bad it got. I had no idea until I got there how bad it had been. But I would go around in the community. Now, now granted, I don't want to exaggerate this. It didn't happen all the time. But sometimes as I'd be knocking on doors and visiting with families and inviting people to church, trying to do outreach, I'd bump into a family and said, Pastor, if I was going to go to church, I wouldn't go to that church. And I'd say, why? They said, because of what all happened there years ago. And in a small community, what happened in that church even hit the newspapers. Some of you growing up in these little country towns, you know that the local community paper, I mean, that was like the gossip column. And they said, man, after everything we read, we're not going to go to a place like that. And so what I'm saying is their division with one another had even hindered the work of gospel ministry. And apparently that's what these two ladies here are in danger of doing at Philippi. You know, I would tremble, I think, over the accountability at the judgment seat of Christ 
standing before the Lord one day, something like this that I'd been responsible for. And so what Paul does, he calls them out by name. Again, poor ladies. Could you imagine doing that? To, you know, maybe we need to do that today some, right? So here, let, uh, some folks uh, troubling the fellowship. Let, let me just call some of you out by name. I, hey, biblical precedent, Paul did it. So I've got a list here. Just kidding. <laughs> Nothing on it. Except a letter from Dr. Cooper to me. Your pastoral staff, we, we've commended y'all because we don't deal with these divisions. And we're appreciative of that. But you know, I guarantee you, once Paul, once they're, they're reading this letter of Philippi and Paul calls out these ladies' names, don't you know that if anybody in the congregation was going to sleep, boy, all of a sudden their ears perked up and they sat up in their chairs then, didn't they? They were awake all of a sudden. Paul is admonishing them to deal with whatever it is. Probably something petty. And then they probably told friends at church who told other friends and people started taking sides. And it probably just amounted to maybe one of them in a Sunday school class one Sunday took some part that the other one wanted to, to teach on. Or you know maybe one of them was supposed to bring pound cake to the church fellowship and the other one fixed the pound cake bed or something like I don't know something something petty like that that's how church fusses go most churches don't fuss over important doctrinal matters normally it's something very petty very childish one of my good buddies in the ministry up in, in Virginia near, near my first church he was telling me one time, Dr. Richard Harrell, a great man, great pastor. I respected him so much. And he was telling me about another area he had pastored in one time. And they got in a big church squabble. You know what it was over? They had ceiling fans in the congregation. And there was a ceiling fan over the organ that was making people cold. And they had a big church brouhaha and battle over that. Are you kidding me, folks? We've got a salvation that according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, even the angels long to look into it. And here we are squabbling over ceiling fans. That's how church fusses go uh, these days. Petty stuff. And for the sake of their preferences, we see all the time... People will destroy the work of God over usually what's just personal preferences over something. Now not, notice that not only did they need to come together and settle these differences, but the church needed to come alongside of them and, and help them in this. And Paul, Paul mentions about them. All these folks, their names are written in the book of life. You see, folks, these are believers. These are, they're, they're not lost people. They might be acting like lost people, but they're saved people who've gotten crossed up somehow with one another. But Paul says, come alongside of them as a church. Don't be a party to, to spread any of this division. In fact, you need to come alongside of them and help them stop it. Because your names are written in the book of life. A great subject matter, a book, 
that started back in the Old Testament towns where citizens of that town would be written in a town registry, a book, showing that they were legitimate citizens of that community. And Paul says of believers, our names are written in heaven's book. Amen? We're citizens of a heavenly city. We're God's children. We're God's family. And believers have their name recorded in in His book. Folks, we always need to remember to whom we belong and whom we represent. Amen? We need to remember that. And we need to remember where we're headed. And so again, Paul says in light of that, deal with these petty disagreements and divisions. You want to have joy in your fellowship? You want to have joy in your family? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you families might have some disagreements going on. You want to have joy in your family and contentment and peace in your family? Deal with little things like that. And help one another deal with those disagreements. A good word for church families today. A third appeal, he he gives an appeal to praise there in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Notice he uses the word again. He said it in chapter 1. He said it in chapter 3. He says it again here in chapter 4. Folks, God's people need to rejoice. Just think of what we have in Christ. Turn with me back a book, just to Ephesians chapter 1 a minute. Let me read something to you. Pick up reading with me in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and following, the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. English versions break it up into eight different sentences. Beginning there in verse 3, and just just listen to the reasons Paul is giving why we need to rejoice and bless the Lord. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things in earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's a mouthful, isn't it? 
Paul is giving reasons there to the Ephesians, just like to the Philippians. Reasons that we have to, to give praise to God, to rejoice in God. I mean, in Colossians 1, he says, After all, we've been transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the blessings that God has given us in Christ. Reasons to rejoice. No wonder Paul says, again I say to you rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Folks, the Bible is not denying that we have difficulties as Christians that can rob us of joy if we're not careful. But the scripture is reminding us, even in difficult times, we need to remember what we have in Christ. Maybe you're going through a difficult period right now, and you're dwelling on that. And I understand that. It's easy to do. But in the midst of difficulty, try instead dwelling on the blessings God's given you in Christ our sins are forgiven we have access before God we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who pray for us and we win in the end amen we win and so always rejoice in the Lord it's not based on circumstances folks as Paul writes these words he's under house arrest in Rome and yet he says rejoice you know, a lost man can rejoice when everything's going his way, but something distinctive about the Christian man is he's able to rejoice even when he's going through tough times. We need to rejoice more, regardless of what life throws at us. A fourth appeal, an appeal to perspective. Look at what he says in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. One commentator says this is perhaps one of the hardest words in the New Testament to translate out of Greek into English because it, it takes so many English words to translate this word when, when Paul says your reasonable, reasonableness. Let it be known to everyone. James Montgomery Boyce says that the sentence is a warning not to be unduly rigorous about unimportant matters. It means gentleness, he says, meekness, graciousness, reasonableness, moderate in the sense of temperate. It means not being short-tempered or demanding or overbearing or selfish or impatient. In other words, we're to have a long fuse with people not a short fuse. We're to be bending where we ought to bend without compromising the faith. We're to be second milers. Remember what Jesus said about that in the Sermon on the Mount? We're to be a second mile type of person. If you're going with somebody carrying their burden for a mile, they ask you to carry it a mile further. He said, do that. Second milers. Folks, we live in times described in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul describes one of the characteristics of the last days is that people will be irreconcilable and hateful and haughty 
for we see that in public today, don't we? As Christians, however, we're to be known as people who are reasonable. You can sit down with people or they can sit down with you and have a reasonable conversation even when you disagree. And notice what he says here. Because the Lord's at hand. Think of that. The Lord's at hand. Maybe you're unbending with people and harsh and critical and negative and, and, and as a believer you need to realize that any moment any moment that shout might occur that trumpet sound and Christ comes back we need to think about that every day when we think about our actions we need to remember the Lord is at hand And lastly, he gives them an appeal to prayer. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, look at that again. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Worry reigns over more people than any king or president ever did. We all know how to worry. We're champions at it. We're gold medalists. Do you ever stop and think, you don't have to be taught how to worry. It just, boy, it just comes naturally, doesn't it? Think about the uselessness of it. Worry in and of itself doesn't accomplish the thing. In fact, psychologists have said that they, supposedly they have proof and all and different studies and all they've done that people worry about things that never happen in their lives. I told you last year. A story I heard online about a woman constantly worried that her family was going to be burglarized by somebody at night became an obsession to her. Well, one night a burglar did break into their home. The woman woke up and shook her husband and said, somebody's in the house downstairs. He got his ball bat and went down there and he came face to face with the burglar and the man said, the homeowner said, could you do me a huge favor? The burglar said, well, I guess that's the least I can do. Would you go upstairs and meet my wife? She's been waiting to meet you for the last decade. <laughs> Worry is one of those things that will kill your peace and joy and contentment in life. So, so Paul says here, be anxious for nothing. By the way, worry comes from a word that means to be pulled in different directions, pulled apart. The old English word means to choke or to strangle. That's a good description of what anxiety or worry does to us. It strangles the life out of us. Worry fails to take into account to whom we belong. And that's why I had Kevin Knight read that passage out of Matthew. If we can understand that God's created us, He's given us life, which is the greater thing 
what Jesus is saying is we can count on God to take care of the lesser things of life. He's not going to give us the greater thing, life itself, and then fail to look after us in the lesser things. We need to take into account to whom we belong. And that reduces worry. You know, to the world, the world says your value or your meaning, your, your purpose comes from your status. Or in 2020, it seems to be whoever you identify with. You know, all of these things, the world says your value. But the Bible says, no, your value comes from the fact that God created you, male and female, in His image. And if you're a Christian, God's redeemed you. That's where your value and dignity comes from. And when we can really grasp that fact that we belong to God, our names are written in His book, boy, it sure helps with anxiety, doesn't it? And so Paul says we need to pray. The Christian response is not to do what people in the world do, but the Christian response is to pray. In fact, the very things that worry us, we need to turn those into supplications to God. And look at the promise, verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says about the peace of God. It surpasses all understanding. In other words, you can't put it into words. Paul's not talking about a peace that occurs when everything's going your way. That kind of peace is understandable. He's talking about the kind of peace God gives you in the midst of your problems. It is the gift of God. And once having received that peace, he says here that God will guard you. He says he'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That was a word that was used in the first century of when a military battalion would encircle a city and guard that. He says the peace of God will surround you and guard you. God will put up a guard of peace around your life. And so what has you concerned? You need to pray. In fact, it may be, as I've told you before, the things that have you most concerned are the things God's using most in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. So pray about those things. And trust that God's got a will. He's got a will, a perfect will, in the midst of it all. I want to ask you this morning to bow in prayer with me. And as you do, is there something that you need to bring to God today? Is prayer neglected in your life? Jesus said in Luke 18 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The opposite of praying about something is to lose heart and despair. Maybe that describes you. So today, again, I want to ask, is there something you need to bring to God? Maybe this morning you need to confess that you need to be a bit more reasonable and long-suffering with people. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known. 
Maybe you have a short fuse, impatient. You're not a two-miler. You're not even a one-miler. You're not even a hundred-yard dash with people. You don't even give them that much. You need to ask God to change that. Maybe this morning you need to start praising and rejoicing instead of focusing on your problems and trials and tribulations, you need to focus on what God in Christ has done for you to make you rich. Folks, that, that's intentional. It's something, it's something you've got to discipline yourself to do. But I guarantee you, as you do, your attitude will begin to change. Perhaps I'm talking to somebody this morning, some petty differences with a brother and sister in Christ. Maybe you need to go and get that taken care of. Especially if it's something that would hurt the ministry of the gospel of you and that person or maybe even a larger group. Are you standing firm in the Lord, abiding in Christ. That's the biggest key right there. Remember, everything flows out of that first admonition I gave you. Everything. You neglect that, everything else I've talked about this morning won't happen. Father, thank you for the peace, the joy that you bring to Christians' lives. Lord, we desperately need that because indeed in this world there is tribulation. Father, I pray when the world looks at us, they would just immediately notice a radical difference between us. If neighbors around us, maybe they're unbelievers, that even our neighbors would notice there's something different about you. Lord, I pray that your work in us would be such that it would be undeniable to others as they watch that we would be an aroma of life of what they can have in Jesus. Lord, as we read about the Philippian congregation, these problems are not problems locked away in the first century. Everything he writes about, we face too in 2020. So Lord, I pray that we would allow your word and what Paul says here to be instructive of our lives today. And I pray especially for that one right now who knows, they know that they know that they know that they need to be saved, they need to come to Christ. You've been convicting them about that. There's nothing they can gain by waiting and potentially everything to lose. I pray that they would come to Christ today and start the journey of life with you at the helm giving them direction in a turbulent world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.